Hello and welcome to the 905er podcast. I'm Roland Tanner. Today is the second in our short series on the present and future of cycling in the 905 region. Sporing where we are, what our region needs and what's possible to build cities that encourage cycling and in the process become better, more attractive and healthier places for all. Our guest today is Dale Bracewell, founder of Mobility Foresight a company providing advisory services to the public and private sector on building, quote, transformative and resilient solutions for mobility of people and goods. What that means in plain English is a company that helps those in positions to make change, often but not necessarily local government, to develop and implement pedestrian, cycling and transit master plans. Prior to founding Mobility Foresight, Dale acquired over two decades of experience developing a sustainable transportation system in Vancouver, creating the city's first active transportation team and an integrated mobility plan for the Olympic and Paralympic Winter Games in 2010. Last week, Dale was the keynote speaker at the Ontario Bike Summit in Hamilton. Before we begin our interview, we'd like to remind our listeners to please like, share, and subscribe to the 905er on whatever device you're listening to us on. As well, follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you like what we're doing, please consider sponsoring us and donating a little bit of money to help us keep going. Visit us at 905er.ca and sign up at the supporter tab on the website. Thanks very much, everyone. Welcome, Dale Bracewell, to the 905 uh, podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Roland and Joel. Uh, glad to be here. So uh, you were at the Ontario Bike Summit uh, this week in Hamilton. You came all the way from uh, from uh, BC to to attend. Um, coming to Ontario, coming from the from the province of mountains to uh, the only city in Ontario with a mountain, I guess, which is Hamilton, which is a very small mountain, but nevertheless. Um, we take what we can. Um, so uh, you obviously you've been involved in uh, the kind of bike infrastructure uh, story uh, out in BC uh, for a very long time. It, what, what brought you to the Ontario Bike Summit, and and what's what what was your kind of impression of, of what needs to happen, uh, or, or what the kind of themes that emerged uh, this week? Yeah, sure. First, uh, the thank the uh, share the road cycling. Uh, coalition for for the invitation. I had uh, the pleasure of participating in a, in the 2018 uh, bike summit. At that time, I was at the city of Vancouver and had done years leading um, our active transportation team as the manager, and was sharing uh, at that time five years ago. You know where we had advanced in terms of designing uh, Vancouver for people of all ages and ability in terms of cycling, and so. This time I was invited back to do a keynote um, because I've <clears throat> completed my career at the city of Vancouver and have now launched um, my own new venture called uh, Mobility Foresight. And so the keynote was really kind of the journey over the 20 year career that I had at the city, much of which had been involved in either the planning or the designing uh, for people cycling and, and, and many transitions uh, that we had done in, in Vancouver um, over those couple decades. And then uh, as well, just to sort of, it's uh, important to be looking ahead and, and to sort of see, um, especially for Ontario cities, but even across Canada nationally, how we need to keep moving forward in uh, the progress that we've been making 
in, in enabling uh, for people to cycle as, as one of the opportunities that they have to move around their city. So it was a combination. And in, including in that, <clears throat> I think a bit different also was, um, you know, there's a, a little bit of a leadership and kind of a, a change management <laughs> that you need to do um, sometimes to kind of make the progress. Uh, cycling is, <clears throat> is still a, a pioneering mode um, in, in, uh, in Canada in terms of just like the proportion of trips. And so we've got more change to do. So hopefully I uh, brought a little bit of inspiration and um, some of the progress we'd made into Vancouver and encouraging uh, the audience to, to continue on, to, to keep doing what they're doing. Um, you, know, you know what, on that note, could you maybe just give us an insight? Like we, we, on this podcast, we don't get a lot of chance to kind of venture outside the 905 and get kind of outside perspectives, but we welcome uh, any chance we get. And I'm wondering what, Kind of work did you did you do in Vancouver to encourage uh, uh, more cycling and more uh, more biking in one of Canada's great cities? Okay, thanks, Joel, for for the question. So, I mean, at the city of Vancouver, like we had a profound change when we created our long range transportation plan, which is called Transportation Twenty Forty. And so the big change was starting right at the policy level where we made it our explicit goal to design to make cycling safe, convenient, fun and comfortable and for people of all ages and abilities. And cycling in Vancouver had been good up until then. We had a we have a great seawall and we had a, a very good network of what we called local streets, bikeways and greenways, which are really the streets that you wouldn't see if you're driving around on arterial and, mm-hmm. and and it was serving some part of Vancouver. Uh, but the big change then through our council approving that uh, design goal for all ages and ability in 2012 meant we as the engineers and planners, we had to design the cycling infrastructure differently so that it would truly be comfortable for like at that time I had three young kids, three young kids to be able to bike around Vancouver. Um, we were bringing on a bike share uh, in a couple of years and we needed to be ready for new people who would want to be making, you know, some short cycling trips. So. So that was kind of, and I can elaborate more, um, uh, but uh, that was kind of the distinct journey and difference. And I think we were, at least in Canada, one of the pioneering cities to really hold ourselves to that new infrastructure. And that meant, by the way, both upgrading existing infrastructure to that all ages and ability standard, uh, but also um, yeah, harder consultations in terms of new, new projects, new links to the network um, that we really needed to engage residents and business and say it's, it's a different type of look of how our public realm would be with the type of cycling infrastructure, usually protected, separated bike lanes or, or very calmed uh, streets to be able to, to hit that uh, new policy goal. And what would you say has been the public's uh, reaction to that? Uh, you know, once the, everything's said and done, uh, are, are people having buyer's remorse now or have people just kind of embraced the change and waiting for what's next? Yeah, I, I mean, of course, like all answers to to the who, there's probably a, a spectrum. But so I'm gonna I'm gonna roll it up though. We we saw fantastic progress in both the number of people cycling as we created that infrastructure that was protected and welcoming for people all ages and abilities, and at the same time, because we held ourselves not just to collect data on the number of people, but the who. So, for example, at the keynote, I, I was I was sharing that when we had done one of our first protected bike lanes in downtown Vancouver, um, we measured the percentage of women. And it had been a painted bike lane on Hornby and we converted it to a protected bike lane, very controversial. So again, there are there various opinions. 
um, expressed on whether or not what the city was starting to do was good. But the, the net result was it was certainly meeting the policy goals. It was certainly giving more people the opportunity to choose a different mode, um, where I showed that the percentages went from like 29% uh, in a couple of years up to 39%. While the, uh, while the thousands of people cycling in day in Hornby had actually had also been increasing. So that's just kind of an example. Um, but, uh, you know, we were getting feedback around schools as well um, for people who are now being able to kind of make journeys that they wanted to make to school, uh, but with, uh, again, more calm streets around some of the schools, it was, it was enabling it and, and people were giving us good feedback um, over, over the progress. I, could you, I mean, you said there was, there was a fantastic progress in terms of sort of overall numbers. And it, it's great to hear yeah, that, that kind of, that the, the range of people choosing to cycle also changing. I mean, that's obviously such an important uh, factor. Uh, but can you could put some bones on those numbers? I mean, what, what kind of uh, increase were you looking at? Uh, sorry, I kind of pulled up uh, my presentation, but what I, you what want I was sharing, there. yeah. <laughs> Um, but to, I guess, you know, even before I had, you know, started at the city um, and, and the previous transportation plan, again, with those seawall and the local bikeways, there had already been, you know, growth in people cycling. But once we started implementing designing for people all age and abilities, cycling became the fastest growing mode in Vancouver. Uh, we actually uh, doubled our, our percentage of, of people cycling uh, daily uh, from, I think, about three and a half to seven percent. Uh, and then journey to work that kind of, you know, what we call the, the, the one that you can compare across all Canadian cities. Um, we actually reached, you know, you know, 10% of all, all, uh, work or, or, uh, school commute trips being by, uh, by bike. So double digits. Uh, that's why I remember uh, that one. And, you know, and then again, I can't remember what year, but we also had a, a really good system of <laughs> measuring, through a travel survey, how many uh, trips every Vancouverite did in a day. And, you know, and then we hit like the 100,000 uh, bike trips in one day, you know, threshold. So just kind of some of the memories and, and then uh, projects themselves, you know, like when we did a, a significant Greenway project, um, uh, the Seaside Greenway, we, you know, we saw an immediate doubling of the number of people cycling when we had kind of calmed an arterial down to, you know, being a low volume street, much more, uh, calm and conducive to to welcome people of all age and ability to to share the road and and cycle. So uh, I mean, I, I was uh, I, I attended one of the sessions on Sunday. Unfortunately, I couldn't get to much more than that. But um, on Sunday with the, the Dutch Cycling Embassy, and it was very fascinating to sort of view what's been done in the Netherlands, obviously. And it's no surprise that they are um, far ahead, I guess, of of of, of Canada. Uh, however, one thing I did notice was was I think a certain level of almost um, fatalism uh, amongst some of the audience of like, well, that's very nice, but you know, it's never going to happen here, or it's not going to happen here for a hundred years. I mean, like literally, I think someone said, you know, five generations or something like that. And it's like, well, that. I mean, I, I can see why that there's that kind of. Um, danger of falling into that kind of pessimism and negativity when, when you know even a small I've, I've watched in our local municipalities here fairly small uh, bike projects bike lane projects turn into massive kind of all-encompassing um uh what well, to use a, a word that isn't well known in scott in, in canada a stramash like a just a sort of nightmare of the public uh, revolting against this idea of, of losing space on their roads 
Um, how do you think, is that a, a, a trend that you've seen? And how do you think we can sort of counter that, that feeling of what's the point? Because all we're going to do is stir up a hornet's nest of, of, of anger amongst the public. Yeah, I, I appreciate what you're saying, Roland, and, 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 heard, and heard those uh, you know, questions of doubt. I, I think, though, to be fair, those are kind of pointing to, are we going to try and be uh, like a Dutch city? And, and I don't think we should try, to be honest. I, I think what we need to do, at least that's what I was trying to do at the workshop, is glean, you know, what can we learn from you know, our European counterparts? But, but we need to have solutions that work for Canadian cities. And so, for example, I'll take one of their five key takeaways that, that is applicable to us. We need to complete a network. So some of these challenges, we had them in Vancouver as well, when you're, you're working on a, a significant road space you know, change to try and create that more delightful um, place for people cycling that's safe and comfortable, um, that can get quite controversial. And, and people do wonder, like, is it all worth it? Um, I'd say for my counterparts in the cities, including those in Hamilton and that, those at the summit, um, the importance of completing a network is really important because it doesn't have to be everywhere in this decade, um, but you're trying to allow that many more possible origins and destinations, again, thinking all the way from kids to seniors and new people cycling. And so that, that I'd say, uh, one of the key takeaways from the workshop is relevant uh, for, for us here in Canada and Ontario. And so it's, um, and then the other, you know, one like feeding into transit, you know, we have the opportunity to make cycling uh, a better opportunity, um, but, you know, we're often really competing against the car. And I'm really excited. Uh, it wasn't mentioned often enough <laughs> by our European colleagues, but I think for us, for example, the transformational opportunity of electric bikes um, is, is, is great. Uh, but I would echo what they were saying, you know, we, we need to be thinking multimodal. When can someone bike to, you know, a higher order bus rapid transit, um, uh, in your case, a go train station? You know, mm -hmm. that's a small, a small amount of cycling infrastructure that really unlocks the opportunity to not be burdened to have to take the car. Um, whereas I think part of what we were hearing again, great presentation, but it's a whole culture shift that the Netherlands have done. And I don't think, that's Canada. <laughs> I think what we what we need to do is embrace the opportunities for us to, because uh, there's lots of opportunities and it's healthy, it's active, um, it's affordable, and again, not everybody has a car. Um, and you know, transit, you know, is 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 hopefully going to keep getting better in our Canadian cities. Uh, but cycling um, with e-bikes and electric, uh, sorry, and bike sharing. M massive opportunities that that we need to embrace ac across um, our, our urban our urban footprints. It, I, I can certainly speak to that 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 network thing, and I, I know. I mean, actually, we were talking earlier when we were talking to Eleanor about the, the at the moment in Burlington as a city that we're very familiar with because we we well, Joel still lives there. I used to live there, and um, it's also Eleanor's uh, home hometown, and um, uh, the feeling that. Um, there isn't that that network doesn't exist now. I know there has been actually a lot of work done by by local um, activist groups and by the city to try and start putting that network together, but of course it doesn't happen overnight. Um, but how key that is to um, th the feeling of viability of getting around the city um, uh, by bike. And and again, I, I recently moved to Hamilton, which is um, has much more of a a 
I can get to an awful lot of places now on protect, protected bike lanes, um, and and it's actually my main means of transportation at the moment. Um, and it, it is kind of transformative when it's like, okay, I'm not taking my life in my hands um, behind a white painted line. <laughs> I, I'm I know I'm actually going to be separated from the traffic, even if it is still the kind of barriers down the side road. That that's a help at least. Um, so it, it's that those details really are quite transformative in how uh, in kind of viewing the, the as myself like certainly not a a, a uh, someone who spent a lot of time cycling in the last couple of decades, but but who's now looking and going, well actually that's the quickest way for me to get to where I want to go, and I don't have to pay for parking when I get there. Um, so I have one of my long statements that doesn't end with a question mark, but I don't know if you have any comments on that. <laughs> Well, well, Roland, I, I just want for your listeners to, I just want to repeat what I heard, um, that you are personally experiencing a transformative way to move around. And, and it has been the difference of like the protected bike lane network in Hamilton that's enabled that. And that's exactly what we're talking about. That's why I say, yeah, it, we, we don't need to become, you know, a, a 37% of people cycling uh, Hamilton or, or Burlington. But yes, we can get out of the the single digits into double digits by creating and what you're experiencing. And, and what you said is really important. This is what I think we, we do need to pick up from the Dutch that we're ultimately trying to make something that ends up being people's most convenient choice. Um, and, and we do need to unlock that with safe, protected infrastructure that's again connected and, and part of a network that really serves um, you and of course all ages and ability uh, well. So just kind of repeating back because, and, and the thing is, is I guess as, as we make those and you make those types of decisions and, and, and others do, now you're freeing up road space for the people that still need to drive that aren't yet served because you can't do an entire network overnight or even over a couple of years. Um, so they're served well if they still needed to drive and then eventually a greater network or a more extensive out um, further from the urban core um, is serving them. And then they have that opportunity as well. And so that's why I'm a real believer in that this needs to be something that the Canadian cities um, like Vancouver to Hamilton and Burlington and Toronto, we all need to continue on this journey because th there's that many more opportunities um, for people to, to make that choice. And again, that helps everybody in the road network. The one other thing I would say that I encourage Canadian cities to do is, as you're again, listening to um, experts from Europe is we have a chance, like walking is so important for us and we're, we're an aging population. How do we, when we make these protected bike lanes, um, improve the walking environment. Uh, firstly, we do that because then some, at least in Vancouver, we always had people cycling on the sidewalk. And it was only then after making, let's say, protected infrastructure along certain corridors and links that people stopped doing that. Well, that, that's a walking improvement as well. And, and often the protected bike lane can be a more at least delightful buffer than, let's say, you know, park cars uh, for some in terms of their walking experience. And I think that's really important for us so that we're really enabling both uh, walking and cycling uh, in our cities at the same time. Um, I, I wanted to, to kind of touch base on this, on something that you hinted at in a uh, statement that you just said, and that was the, the idea of the culture uh, change. And I, cause I know there are people who are going to, who are listening to this in, the, in their mind, they associate Vancouver and British Columbia with a very outdoorsy lifestyle already, a very active healthier lifestyle um stereotypes may be true or not but that's i know i know a list, some of our listeners are gonna be like well you know it's an apples and oranges scenario here but i'm wondering if you could tell us like 
have you seen a culture shift in Vancouver of people who are more readily accept, accepting of bikes and, and cycling as the that is maybe their primary mode of transportation around the city? Yeah, and and Joel, I think it's really important that you ask that because you know it's very common that one of the stakeholders of pushback is is businesses, and so let's start there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really important that the municipalities. Um, again, with uh, along with who, whoever else the partners are, whether they're cycling advocates or just others who who want to create a cycling uh, friendly city, um, you know, work with businesses. And what that meant for us in Vancouver, which I would encourage others to do, is is not just on the project itself, but create an ongoing forum for businesses to share w- what are their woes. Um, it was only when we engage businesses with the beginnings of our protected bike lane network, which rightfully so they said kind of was new and kind of didn't come through a regular plan and, and they were right. Um, but by engaging them for a couple of years, they came up with some good solutions. For example, um, they wanted the impact of the construction phase to be more minimal. Can we make some bike, uh, you know, businesses or open signage to support them? Yes. Uh, the other was, again, each city might be different, but in Vancouver, it was really important for them to say, we know that you're going to do more of these cycling projects. Can you please have a declared in advance five-year map? Because we make business decisions. We make leases and we kind of want to know ahead, even before you're willing and coming out to us to talk about the engagement of the changes. We said, yes, we, we can do that because we aren't going to be building the cycling infrastructure everywhere in the city. We can come up with a thoughtful five-year map. And I'm just giving you a couple of examples. And then the mm-hmm. result was, I'm not saying that maybe then businesses the, the biggest um, enablers of, of an emerging bike culture, but they were part of it, such that our downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association, after years of working with them and having those types of conversations and solutions that supported their bottom line, the businesses that they support, they became supporters of kind of the ongoing cycling culture. One more was that also having the conversation where with businesses where they start to realize, wow, lots of my employees are biking or actually want to. And that's important for them as well, because, you know, parking for employees all day, as opposed to customers, is also an impact um, for them. So so that's, I would say, the journey of, of bike culture and businesses, I'd say, one of the top three I would recommend that uh, city cities have. Um, and the reason why, I, it, it's, it's fascinating to, to hear, because that's one thing that a lot of our I think uh, criticism I hear is just, you know, build, build it and build it, but nobody ever thinks, nobody ever really does think about talking to the small business or uh, medium-sized businesses in the areas affected to say they need, you need their buy-in. Um, but the, the I, I find it, it's, it's fascinating because I think it's very applicable here to the 905. Uh, that being said, I, I'm going back to my original premise of people saying, well, you're in the West Coast and you have nothing to do with the 905. And I was thinking, as you're describing this change, geographically, Vancouver is very limited in terms of how much it can continue to build out. Um, like you're you're right on the mountain, the Rocky Mountains there. So it's not as if you you can just say, okay, I'll just build a new that new farmland. I'm just going to build a new subdivision or a new strip mall in that, in that on that plot of land. So you're very limited in terms of the space that you can use. And I find it mirrors here in the 905 because we ha- we've legislatively, we've built a green belt around the 905 where in theory, we're no longer allowed to build into. Um, 
politically that might be different, but I'm not going to get in. I'm not going to bore you with those details. Our listeners will know what I'm talking about. But again, we've kind of, we've legislated said, uh, we're making this imaginary line. We're no longer be able to build there. So it's kind of, we built our own mountain that we can't build into. And I, I just kind of want to talk about like, the necessity of that, of that cycling infrastructure, that cycling pro, um, project for the future growth of these two areas that, you know, as we become dense, a denser populated people, how viable is, is uh, or how important is cycling to ensure that we're able to get around and be able to live with each other uh, peacefully, I suppose. Yeah, I, I think that, um, I guess, yeah, maybe don't know exactly where we have the direct um, equivalent, but we have, if we both have geographic um, kind of boundaries and or, or constraints, um, ours a little maybe even more pronounced by water and, and, and mountains. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, and, and, you know, I think, you know, making uh, complete communities and, and having more opportunities for the, the things that we want to do in our daily lives, um, they tend to be in, in closer um, proximity, enabling then, especially walking, like I said, that's why I say walking and biking, um, but cycling as well, uh, because <laughs> it's not about being someone who bikes for all of their trips. <laughs> Uh, every day or, or all week, but it is it is as we then build out these communities um, in the kind of larger Toronto Hamilton area, and and, and I'll call it the the Metro Vancouver area, mm -hmm. um, not just the city of Vancouver where I work. I live in North Vancouver. You know, I I had to bike over one of only two uh, you know vehicular bridges that had at least some place for people cycling uh, to be able to get to work every day, and so there there's a, a a water constraint that you know had had have to take a bridge over and. And the equivalent. So, so as we do that, um, there's something that's kind of worth mentioning, and it, and it's the idea of uh, safety in numbers. Once we start seeing more people on, you know, a growing protected bike lane network, um, it, it it does a couple things. We, you know, we we start seeing ourselves kind of more and our friends and our neighbors there, kind of also making the occasional choice to bike. But then we're also sometimes drivers, and we're also picturing a loved one. Uh, also uh, riding a bike and, and, and it actually has proven that once you start getting a little bit more uh, people cycling, then then it starts, you know, fostering again the complete community and, and people are like, yeah, that's their choice for today. That's my choice for tomorrow and both both driving or, or, or cycling. And so there, there's an opportunity over time to, to, to see that uh, to see that grow and and really be a more vibrant society and where people are healthier um and and having more opportunity to make those again it's all about convenience usually anyways uh but it's comfortable and safe when they choose cycling um and and then those so anyways back to the point yeah some of those boundaries are very helpful for helping build out kind of more sustainable communities that that we all enjoy mm -hmm. so in your in your line of work now um where i presume you're, you're working with municipalities trying try to encourage them to sort of take the next step uh, and certainly, I mean, I found over the years that uh, I don't know about BC, but municipalities in in Ontario can be small C conservative beasts, um, and and that um, uh, even minor incremental change can be unbelievably hard <laughs> to to get uh, progress on. Uh, not always because of the politicians, but because of kind of institutional inertia in 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 different uh, municipal departments. Um, and you know, uh, look, not infighting, but conflicts of interest between departments, where where you know this department may support cycling infrastructure, but this department's like this is not our you know this is not a priority. 
is that something you run into that that kind of um uh, sort of banging your head against a wall uh, sort of process uh, in municipal governments and if, if you do i mean how, how do you think we overcome that yeah well thank, thanks for all i guess it's it's a bit of um an introduction a little bit more to to mobility foresight kind of what i'm trying to do is you know there are cities across canada that are running into those walls and and i'm just trying to make myself a little say hey had um a long career at the city, an opportunity to kind of break through some of the barriers there, and, and how do how do I help you? Uh, it can be frustrating, and sometimes just a little bit of a an engagement with with uh, someone else helps. And so the idea, though, is as you look ahead with with foresight um, to kind of bang through some of those barriers. You know, you you need to look ahead, and you know, COVID was of course the the massive disruption in mobility that's easy now, now to reference, but there are other outside influences that are also going to push us to want to have more cycling friendly cities. So for example, um, you know, I mentioned electric bikes, but let's go further to that. Cargo, uh, urban freight. Um, there is a large trend across Canada, including, and I just put on LinkedIn this morning, the uh, city of Toronto uh, doing a partnership with Purolator. Uh, why? Because it makes sense. And they're converting truck deliveries to electric cargo bikes. Um, and we had that uh, pilot um, idea in Vancouver. Montreal has been doing it, um, and and this is happening, you know, everywhere. Um, so the to kind of, I guess, don't put your head in the sand, and to be looking ahead. Not only there's all this planning and policy. I think that we've kind of covered well in terms of why people cycling. What I'm trying to do to help other cities, and now I'm being engaged from Halifax, you know, to municipality here in Metro Vancouver, and and hopefully more across Canada is, you know, hey, let's let's look at these because when you start seeing trends and becoming patterns um, and you kind of start seeing there's there's more than three reasons to enable a, a cycling friendly city and now there's eight, um, this is going to be good for your economy, this is going to be good for people, this is going to be good for, for, for your environment, um, climate change, uh, resilience, that's the other, I mean, we're going to mm. have some uncertain times, um, you know, the, the cycling infrastructure, and again, it was shared at the bike summit, I would say, hey, how are you doing with stormwater management? Maybe your next cycling infrastructure project is part of how you want to manage um, water, which is harder to predict and we're getting, you know, more different climate storms. And then, oh, that's the breakthrough for them, right? And then someone else is like, vision zero, safety. Yes, we truly do want to eliminate all fatalities and serious injuries. Okay, well, now that's still going to point to the same type of cycling design that was emphasized at the bike summit. So, I guess I have a lot of optimism. I've got a lot of ideas and I would just try to, uh, you know, resonate and sort of see, you know, municipality, city by city, urban center, what is actually, you know, because each of them tends to have a bit of it, whether it's the politics um, or the administration or what, again, the residents and business want in that community. But there's, there's so many good reasons to build out a bike friendly city. Um, I just think if people are willing to have the conversation, we can find a way forward. I'm, you know, you're talking about you're working from you know, literally coast to coast on this. And I'm wondering if you can give us kind of that, that uh, uh, perspective of what, what are Canadians uh, uh, attitudes towards, you know, this more healthier, healthier lifestyle, friendly uh, urban planning uh, across the country. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Joel. Um, I'd say, <clears throat> What I'm hearing, and again, it's still early days. It's my first year of the company, so I 
want to qualify it. But I, I think that um, it's it's really the the idea around what part is your kind of whether you're a city or region is your kind of true urban core, um, and then kind of your maybe your next level is sort of like your um, mid, mid mid to close suburbs, and then your suburbs and and really looking at that we talked mentioned transformative. Look at the transformation starting with you know where it makes the most sense, where you got the the dense density to make the kind of more complete community, and and again always thinking that you know when we're enabling for people cycling, it's actually helping all modes. I think safety is um, a common one that resonates. Uh, everybody can agree on on safer streets, um, and then again depending on sort of kind of the urgency of whether it's, you know, climate change or resilience um, or the economy, then I would, you know, go more to the businesses. But there's, uh, I think, just an, an overall appetite um, for more sustainable uh, mobility. And then the challenge, I'd say, is, of course, um, still um, with proper engagement on the kind of the, the right size um, and, and the right pace of type of solutions of transformation in each of those cities, because that's that's where I'd say the greatest variance is. I, we just have a couple of minutes left. I, I thought we, it's, you've mentioned a couple of times the 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 impact of the kind of e-bike um, revolution. I don't know if revolution is too strong a word or too weak a word uh, or, or on um, the kind of uh, cycling world. Uh, how big of a, a of a change is that i i know i heard the weekend that you know in, in the netherlands this is something they didn't see coming and it's actually changed the way they're having to plan for the future of their um infrastructure um and that it's simply not big enough uh anymore for for, for the sort of volume of traffic they're getting but is that uh do you think something the the, the e-bike side of things is something that's really going to have a big impact here uh, yes, um, and I think the the one I, I tend to point to is uh, Denver. Um, they have kind of like the best example where they actually had an e-bike incentive program, and it's not just the story that the e-bike incentives you know went within one day because you know maybe maybe people were ready for that. But they again, sorry, I don't have it right in front of me, but they published um, fantastic results of how those e-bikes replaced car trips. And how those oh, wow. uh, then saved um, tonnage in terms of greenhouse gases that weren't taken up, which again created a healthier Denver for everybody uh, by certain people just taking the first wave of e-bike incentives. So what what it's doing is unlike you have your mountain, your escarpment. <laughs> uh, we have our true mountain in Vancouver. Um, other Canadian cities um, that we're not talking about have a lot of winter. Uh, and and the the idea of e-bikes, I absolutely think it's it's a revolution. And I would encourage cities to think of something like e-bike incentives, at least in this opportunity to have a faster transformation. And then again, that complemented with continuing to complete your network. And again, like I said, bringing in the safety, but also the safety in numbers with more people. So I think e-bikes um, unlock so much people who are don't want to sweat uh, and and they just want to show up in good work clothes. Um, fantastic e-bikes cover that the other thing about e-bikes is in my own personal use i realize you, know, you can use it when you want and then you can kind of relax and pedal slowly if you like and it's choice it's just then unlocking a greater chance of your choice in in mobility and uh i think it's it's still untapped and i think we've got uh, more to 
kind of tap into here in Canada. Again, Denver being a, 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 a great example of the transformation they have with just one wave of, of incentives for more people to be able to choose cycling. And, and I guess uh, I was hearing someone, someone the other week talking about this, about, you know, uh, I think it's sort of like the mountain bike community is like people turn up with an e-bike and people can be a bit stiffy as well, you know, you're, oh, it's the lazy people turning up on their e-bikes. And it's like, well, no, this is still active transportation because you, you can still pedal them uh, and you're still getting out of the house and you're still um, uh, being more active than, than you would have been in the car. It's, it's just a, a different, um, it, it's just a slightly less uh, um, intensive mode, I guess, of, uh, not, not that cycling has to be intensive, but uh, it, I've never been on an e-bike, but is that is that a kind of fair reflection of, of what, what um, uh, the newest generation of e-bikes are kind of doing? Yeah, and I'd say also there's, you know, there's a, there's a variety of e-bikes. Um, so, for example, Tampa Bay, imagine we'll see that they're, they're going to be successful in terms of the results, but they created vouchers for different types of e-bikes. Um, so, again, you know, mostly how people would picture these is European, but, you know, cargo bikes where, you know, a, a parent could have one of their young children, um, uh, you know, in the cargo bike. Uh, again, re reducing a car trip around the school where we definitely, you know, want to have, you know, less cars for everybody who's arriving. So yeah, there's, there's different types of e-bikes. And, and again, some are being much more, you know, chic and kind of trendy and others are more utilitarian, but uh, it's, it's like auto manufacturers. There's just a, a, a wider range now availability and, and different types um, for, again, you know, even multiple parts of a family being able to, to make um, a, a journey uh, together. We, we should probably uh, draw this to a close here, but I mean, I was just wondering as, as a final sort of final thoughts to think, I mean, uh, I don't know how well you know Hamilton, but obviously you were here uh, this week. Um, if you had the ability to sort of wave a magic wand and make one change to, to Hamilton's cycling infrastructure right now, is there, is there something that you would, you would immediately try to do, whether it's like a, sim a single intersection or, or as a kind of uh, overarching theme that, that, that you'd recommend a city uh, like Hamilton uh, try to implement? Uh, well, let me, let me just, I'll, I'll say uh, street trees. Um, okay. I, I saw for the protected bike lane network that I saw and, 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 and I, I heard really good advancement of kind of more um, cycling network plans uh, coming. But I think, again, thinking of how to make the street more delightful for people walking and cycling and street trees, even in between, let's say, a protected bike lane and the moving car lanes, um, again, creates a buffer for both people walking and cycling and Again, has stormwater management, green infrastructure, resilience, et cetera. So that would be my main encouragement is continue your trend, uh, but have those streets more delightful with uh, urban trees in, in Hamilton as one observation. I will certainly vote for more delightful streets uh, and a more delightful Main and King in particular. <laughs> it couldn't be less delightful than they are right now. Uh, Dale, uh, uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, uh, today. We really appreciate it and uh, uh, all the best with your future endeavours and we may speak to you again in the future. Hey, thanks, Joel. Thanks, Roland. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. 
As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com.